This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and joining me today, it's a very college football-heavy Tuesday night show, but uh, I am excited to talk about Wisconsin football, the uh, the new unsung giant in college football this fall, um, and to help me kind of get a better perspective on Wisconsin's dominance, Matt Bells of um sb nation's great wisconsin blog is here matt good evening how are you doing great how are you doing chase i'm good i'm good where did the fifth quarter thing come from for bucky's fifth quarter.com am i crazy for not knowing what that is no you're not crazy i'm sure a lot of fans um outside of wisconsin probably aren't totally familiar with it um but that's a tradition that the uh team has had for years um uh, for Badger football after the fourth quarter runs out, you know, a lot of times uh, coaches will, you know, run to the press conferences and go through all the, the normal media rush. But um, the band will come out and play and uh, thousands of fans will stick around and, uh, you know, sing, dance uh, to the the band. And sometimes the players will stay out and do fun things with it. So it's just a little tradition that the Badgers have. Uh, that's called the fifth quarters. Uh taken out after the fourth okay well there you go now i know um wisconsin fascinates me this year i mean as long as they're not playing northwestern um i'm always in um what they're doing um just from a aesthetic perspective but this is a team that i think didn't get the kind of, i mean obviously just steamrolling michigan was a big thing for them but um there's just uh, so many different stats about wisconsin that fascinates me like for instance this is from jesse temple who does a great job for the athletic wisconsin um number eight wisconsin entered uh the game as a five touchdown favorite and this is when they blew out kent state this weekend 48 to nothing who had the worst run defense in college football heading into the game which when you're playing a team um headlined by jonathan taylor tailback uh not great uh, yeah not great at all <laughs> <laughs> and it when is you expected four touchdowns in the first half he got to sit it out in the second half and he's like just he's basically i think he has what 17 rushing touchdowns um through four games something 17 like that. To- 17 total touchdowns 12 on the ground right and that's only a second to ricky williams uh in comfortable history who had 20 which is just insane to think about uh but he entered the they entered the game as a five touchdown favorite um and just blew them into smithereens um, as their last little tune-up game before they get into full-fledged Big Ten play. What have you seen to this point um, now that Wisconsin is only going to be playing Big Ten games and important football from here on out? You know, I think the big thing is last year the Badgers 
had their ups and downs. You know, there was some some off the field stuff going on um, with the Quintez Cephas case and everything. But this year, the defense has really kind of jumped out. The defense is number one uh, in the nation in terms of uh, total defense as well as scoring defense. You know, I'm, stats only go so far, but um, when you when you watch it, the the defense just looks a whole lot better. They've got guys getting after the passer. Last year, they only had 19 total sacks. They've already got 21 this year. So that was a, a thing that Zach Bond, uh, their senior outside linebacker, he's got uh, a six of them already this year in talking with him. They really made it a, a presence this offseason to really get after the quarterback and to strengthen up against the run as well. They got healthier on the D-line. So the the defense is really what stood out to me. Uh, last year, they obviously weren't terrible on the defensive end um, with Jim Leonard to call in the plays. But at the same time, this year, it's been a, it's been a whole different level uh, compared to what it was. Is it just health or what have you seen that's different um, on the field last year versus this year? I think I think health goes a long way, you know the return of a healthy Isaiah Loudermilk, you know, he's six, seven, 300 plus pounds uh, as a defensive end. And he's really good at batting down plays if he can't get to the quarterback. And then uh, the return of Garrett Rand, you know, uh, a thicker guy, he's like six foot two, closer to 300 pounds, but he missed all of last year with an Achilles injury. He's been really good against the run and his presence has been felt. Uh, and then the other guy, Matt Henningsen, who was healthy last year on the defensive line, uh, he's really just kind of come into his own. He was playing as a redshirt freshman. He wasn't ready. He, he just wasn't ready as a walk-on. Uh, this year, you know, he's got two touchdowns as a, as a defensive player and has really made some splash plays. So I think the defensive line has really opened up uh, plays for the linebackers. Wisconsin's 3-4 scheme is predicated on that defensive line eating up space so that the linebackers can maneuver. And the linebackers have done just that. Really, uh, Jack Sanborn, uh, a so- true sophomore, uh, is leading the team in tackles with 28. But then senior linebacker Chris Orr uh, it lost some, some weight in the offseason uh, and was stuck behind Ryan Connolly and TJ Edwards last year, but he's really uh, making a name for himself and playing really well. Uh, so I would say the defense, you know, obviously health is a big thing, but but just that defensive line uh, having a presence has really allowed the linebackers to run free. And Zach Bond has just been a beast so far for them at, at outside linebacker. What have you seen that just makes it seem like, because they have three shutouts um, through five games, which is just insane, but what is it about this team that just does a really good job of never allowing either big running plays and especially like when they get in the red zone, just really nothing, nothing there. They just won't allow teams to score. And like even the Northwestern game where the defense had to do a lot of the heavy lifting for the team just to bail them out of that one. Um, What is it about this defense in general that really just makes it impossible for you to score, especially in the red zone? I think part of it is, you know, the energy level that they have uh, is just top notch. You know, that wasn't something we saw last year all the time. But beyond that, they do a really good job. Oftentimes, Wisconsin goes straight man to man. They go they go uh, safety or two over the top, uh, depending upon uh, the coverage type. But usually they go man to man and and they'll do press man to man oftentimes with their corners. They've got a couple bigger corners uh, this year. Um with Deron Harrell, who is six foot two, six three, depending upon uh, where you're looking, and then Caesar Williams, who's six foot one. So they've got some tall, rangy corners that can get up and press into you. And then 
um, they have a couple safeties that they're going to try to funnel them into those safeties where they have the, the help. And so those safeties have been able to make a plays this year. Scott Nelson, that one of their starting free safeties went down actually for a season ending injury, but they've had some, some serious depth there with Reggie Pearson, Eric Burrell and um, Colin Wilder. So they have some, some great pieces it, at safety that they can use and they're able to get after the quarterback. Uh, that wasn't, like I said, something they could do last year, but you know, they're, they're really having a whole heap of uh, tackles for loss this year and making sure that they're making teams in tough situations that they they're having to go uh, third and long instead of allowing teams to kind of um, dink and dunk their way up the, up the field. So kind of forcing their way on the ground, uh, not allowing teams to run the ball and making them kind of uh, not be able to get in good places on third down has really helped them. I think what's so interesting too is that, I mean, their schedule has not been incredible through five games, three non-conference where they they shut them out. Um, I think it was like 158 to nothing. Um, First time an FBS program has done that um in their first five games since virginia tech did that in 2001 so shout out to bud foster who um not great this year so um all great things must come to an end but um they've also not trailed at all all season and i mean they have played michigan and northwestern's always feisty with that defense but um are you at all surprised by just how dominant they are heading into this point in the season yeah, I ha- I am. Um, you know, I in going into the season, I projected them to kind of go nine and three. I think a, a lot of people kind of felt that eight or nine wins was kind of the the magic number based off of a, a fairly difficult Big Ten slate. Um, but you know, they have surprised. You know, I've, outside of that Northwestern game where they kind of struggled at times offensively, defense was was great. Special teams uh, had a had a rough go in that game as well, which I think led to um, that game being closer than it, than it really should have been. But the big thing is they've they've gone ahead and. I think everybody has seen that Paul Chris can sometimes turtle the team in and, and just kind of like slowly grind a game out and hope, hoping for a win. Um, but this year he's had more of a confidence about this, which I think is recognizable. You know, in that Michigan game, they went for it on fourth and two on their own 30 some yard line, which is just not something that he'll normally do when we have seen in years past, Paul Chris punt on the opposing 38. So it's one of those things to kind of, to see from this team that confidence and it shows they they've gone ahead and a lot of times they've been receiving the ball to start the game. They've scored on every drive so far this year. And I think they're the only team in the FBS to have done so uh, through their first five, six games. So, you know, every time has led to a Jonathan Taylor touchdown, which, you know, not, not a bad place to start. It's interesting you bring up the special teams because it just seems like that's like the only thing Wisconsin Badger fans are concerned about a little bit. The punter, not great. One of the worst in uh, FBS in punt distance on average. Um, and then fans, it seems like, are also a little concerned with, I mean, Dunn had a, a, a muff punt uh, a week ago, but are you at all concerned with anything special teams related with this team right now? I, I think you, uh, you, you know, the kicking game, field goal kicking, I think is 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 a concern you know they they missed an extra point this last week i mean treacherous conditions in terms of the amount of rain that was coming down it wasn't fun sitting in that uh in the stands for that one but at the same time you know you've got to make those extra points you've got to make your field goals uh because that can come back and and haunt you later on so i would say that uh in special teams punting is not great uh anthony lottie is averaging about 41 yards a punt um 
you know, which, which isn't great, isn't terrible, but then field goals is where I would say is uh, where I've heard the most uh, woes two of five, uh, a couple of them from longer distances, which isn't Colin Walsh's uh, greatest asset. But at the same time, it's one of those things where if you have to come into a game and you're counting on a 40 yard field goal, it gets dicey. And so I think that's, that's the place where I would say I'm still a little worried. Um, they have a guy, Zach Hintz, who can really boot it on kickoffs. So that's been, um, you know, a, a great thing to see because they've been able to hold opponents in, in tough starting spots. But field goal kicking is definitely an area that I um, am concerned. I, I think if, as, as I know, you probably watch enough uh, college football chase to know that um, there's a lot of muff punts in college football. We've yeah. seen game, games end on it uh, in that Iowa Iowa State game. So it's yep. it's one of those things where it these these guys are still only you know 20 years old out there trying to to catch a punt, and a lot of punters are doing the not necessarily the rugby style anymore, but they they boot it with where they're trying to just basically knuckleball it and just see if uh, they can get a weird bounce or something crazy to happen. So I think. Jack Dunn, Paul Christ has said that he's the guy and he's gives them the best shot. But um, field goals is still where I would be uh, a little uh, concerned if I was a Badger fan. They um, something I noticed, and I'm um, a huge nerd when it comes to personnel types and why teams do what they do and what works, what doesn't, especially in college football where it just um, personnel just matters so much in what you do and like understanding your personnel and running a scheme that fits what you can do. Um, they ran a lot of shotgun against Northwestern and Paul and Paul Christ, I think is a great coach, all that jazz. But I did wonder why they operated that way against Northwestern. Do you think it was just the way Northwestern's defense works that they thought it'd be a good idea to have him uh, play from the gun a lot, but it just seems like when he is under center and you're doing some play action and just doing stuff through Jonathan Taylor, that that's their best recipe for success. Or do you think we'll see a lot more of Jack Cohn in the, in the, in a shotgun formation um, in, with Big Ten play on the horizon. Yeah, and during that Northwestern game, that did really jump out uh, while watching it. Um, the I, I would say I'm not totally sure of the rationale behind it. I know Chris had said that that was the game plan, that that's what they wanted to do. Um, but at the same time, you saw this past weekend, uh, Kent State actually had cue cards that they held up, basically just letting you know um, – what type of uh, formation the Badgers were doing. And they were basically holding up 22 the entire time. So <laughs> two tight ends, two uh, our tailback and running back, letting them know, hey, they're going with a heavier set. So um, it was nice to see the Badgers kind of get back to that. Jack Cohn was a, uh, a quarterback in high school that threw and did most of the offense uh, out of New York in the shotgun. So he is cu- accustomed to it, but, and we saw a lot of that in uh, fall camp, you know, a lot of badger sets in the pistol and in the shotgun. But I think, I, I honestly think that they were trying to put that on tape. I think that was the big thing is try to get reps with it, try to get it on tape. Um, obviously Northwestern might not be the uh, most convenient team to be doing that, but at the same time, I, I feel as though maybe there was something that they had seen in terms of protection or that Jack Cohn might have been hobbled a bit or something where he wasn't able to get as much depth in his drops. So they wanted to make sure that they could do that. But, um, you know, I think a lot of Badger fans were kind of thrown in what was happening. But um, I think getting back to the normal game plan of, you know, 22 um, personnel or um, even uh, 21 personnel with two running backs and a, and a tight end is more along the, the bread and butter of Wisconsin football. So it was a, uh, it was reassuring to see them get back to that, even if it was just against the lesser opponent like that. 
what what is different about Jonathan Taylor um, from other um, elite running backs that have come out of Wisconsin, like Melvin Gordon, like Monty Ball? Like, what is what is something that separates him and makes him uniquely great? I think his his balance. I know a lot of people talk about it. He's got a he's got a re- really good burst when he hits that second level, and he's able to to shed tacklers. But his his balance just makes it so that he is he's never um, not under his under his or over his feet, I should say. Um, he's kind of always right there. He's always in control. And I mean, there was a time this past weekend I turned to my wife as he was running, and he hadn't broken the um, the offensive line and I was like he's gone and sure enough nobody even touched him it was just a wonderful wonderfully blocked situation by the offensive line but I think his balance um, when you pair that with his with the speed he has and the strength he has is a uh, is a pretty good combo for a uh, for a college football back and uh, you know he's probably the best uh, that I've seen you know in the past 25 30 years um, in Wisconsin other than maybe Melvin Gordon those two I would say are kind of uh an equal footing in my book. So when you look at the rest of the schedule, um, what, what are you thinking? What do you, what are you worried about? How do you see the, the rest of the season going for Wisconsin? Um, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, for the Badgers this weekend against Michigan state. I think Michigan state's uh, defense is obviously very talented, great front seven, um, but their offense has kind of been up and down, especially when they've taken on uh, higher competition. Um, I think that game at Ohio State is going to be really tough. Ohio State's looked really, really good this year. I would go so far as to say they're they are one of the top one or two teams. If you're just basing it off of not what you did last year or what you've done the past five years, but what you've done, so what have you done for me lately? They are. Uh, I think they're the best team in college football this year. Yeah, it's they're they're scary elite uh, in terms of what they're bringing to the table, and we know they have the talent. So that's not a game I expect the Badgers to go in and and win. Uh, you know, they're not going to be favored. Um, it wouldn't surprise me totally if they were able to, but at the same time, I, I'm not going to pick them in that. I think the game before that, Illinois, I like their chances. I was always a tough contest. Uh, you know, they, they both just kind of just throw haymakers at one another and just see whose blood is on the uh, field more. Um, and it's one of those things where it'll be nice that they have a bye week before that to kind of rest up because obviously – uh, Ohio State is going to be a grind for the Badgers on the road. So I, I do like their chances versus Iowa. Nebraska is kind of an enigma. Nobody really knows what to think of them. Everybody was super high in the media. Um, they were predicted to win the Big Ten West um, and everything. But at the same time, they haven't really figured it out on offense totally. And their defense is pretty porous at this point against the run, something the Badgers obviously uh, love to do. Uh, Purdue, you know, you hate to see injuries. They're struggling with that and their run defense is kind of poor. Uh, I honestly think that, uh, you know, Ohio's at Ohio state versus Iowa and then at Minnesota are going to be their toughest games of the year. And I know for a fact that the Badgers are going to be up for that game at, uh, um, Minnesota, uh, going up in the twin cities. I think, um, what I love most about this season is that uh, we're going to get the most intense and highly like highest profile Wisconsin Minnesota game in my lifetime, right? Like oh. Minnesota, the case for like ten and two Minnesota is uh, is wild, but they just they keep winning and um, love their love their offense. I love. I'm still a PJ Fleck guy. I I enjoy all of that. I think um, he's entertaining, and obviously this is going to be fun. Like I am. 
or how excited are you about Wisconsin, Minnesota just being like an actual intriguing, fun uh, season finale? Yeah, I mean, it, it'll definitely be awesome to see it relevant. You know, you know, last year it it while the Minnesota won the game and beat the Wisconsin for the first time in like 14 seasons, yeah. uh, it, it really uh, didn't didn't have the, you know, the buildup that Badger fan, at least on the Badger side of it, that normally is, is there simply because a lot of uh, Badger fans had packed up the season were, were uh, not super thrilled with how the team had played. And Wisconsin went out and just laid a complete egg in that game, uh, as I'm sure you saw. So it, it'll, it'll, it'll be an anticipated game. Minnesota has not had a, a lot of contest uh, so far in a lot of their games. I should say no. they have they haven't had great premier competition, but they have had contests yeah. um, to this point. But um, you know the season's going to get tougher for them. But at the same time, they're playing really good tough. football. Yeah, I mean they got Nebraska at home. They go to Rutgers. They go. They get Maryland at home, and then the Penn State buzzsaw comes in, and they get Penn State, Iowa, and that Northwestern before Wisconsin. So it's not a great stretch before you're having to play Wisconsin. But like, I think it's very realistic that they have two losses going into that final final week against oh um, totally wisconsin. and wisconsin totally. probably has one there and then it's just like oh a two loss wisconsin team or a two loss minnesota team versus a one loss wisconsin team to wrap up the season that's that's cool yeah no it's it's definitely it'll be it'll be great to see you know i'm i'm a not a huge minnesota fan i've got family in minnesota but at the same time you have to respect what they're doing this year compared to what they have had for the past decade or so um and and the big thing is in talking with the players, they they are ready for that game already. They had uh, in the off season, the Badgers didn't have the axe. They have a big display case where it's normally held, um, and instead, in that in the spot, they had put a picture of the Minnesota team celebrating on Camp Randall, oh, uh, no. blown blown up and put in that space. And uh, you know that's one of those things that uh, in talking with Jake Ferguson in the preseason, he was like, "Yeah, we're uh, still pretty salty about that one." Uh, so it'll be a it'll be a definitely a great game, and it'll it'll be nice to see a renewed rivalry in that because the rivalry is pretty even in terms of wins and losses over the history uh, as as the oldest uh, rivalry in college football. But uh, it's it's obviously been leaned towards Wisconsin's end these past like thirty years. But uh, it'll be good to see it kind of tilted back a little bit and seeing kind of how these two teams would uh, battle it out. All right. So what if you had to do your most objective guess as to how the season unfolds for Wisconsin? What is it? Do you, what is the record and do they make the playoff? Um, yeah, that's tough. Um, I, I don't feel great about that game at Ohio State. I think Ohio State's just playing at a different level. Um, in order for them to get to the playoff, I would think that they would have to either beat Ohio State the first game in October, at the end of October, and or beat them in the Big Ten Championship, which I don't see them beating them twice for sure. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a thing where they could beat, lose to them in October and come back and win in the Big Ten Championship. But um, I think they will miss the playoff. I uh, I have seen too many times in Wisconsin history that there, it kind of gets really close and then it kind of tapers a bit. So I will say that they end up losing two games this year, and I'll say they're both to Ohio State because I think Ohio State is that good this year um, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where Taylor finishes in the Heisman. Maybe that's the most interesting. 
um, just because it's so hard for a running back. Um, it's not as hard as, as like the NFL of running back winning MVP versus a quarterback. But I do wonder if he just keeps putting up Ricky Williams type numbers this year and they just keep running that offense through him. If he has a realistic shot or it's, um, I don't know. I, I don't know who the favorite is right now. Um, I mean, it's always a good guess to bet on the Oklahoma quarterback with Lincoln Riley, but um, I think it's wide open right now. I think you can make the case for a lot of people and Jonathan Taylor is among the five. Um, I guess if I had to guess at the moment who it is, it's Fields, but um, it, it should be interesting a Fields versus Taylor matchup and how Heisman voters look at that game and who does what and everything else. So, yeah, no, and that's what the Heisman's just as much as it's about oftentimes quarterbacks. It's also those moments, you know, if you think yeah. back to Reggie Bush when he, you know, won his, he basically won it in uh, almost two games, you know, it's, it's, so if, if Jonathan Taylor wants to cement himself as a true contender, he will have to ball out against Ohio State, ball out against Michigan State and Iowa uh, in order to kind of show that, hey, I, I'm for real. Um, you know, he's got 745 so far on the or yeah, 745 yards on the ground so far this year. But he hasn't played. He's only played one game where he's been out on the field for the fourth quarter. And most of the time he's been out of the game by midway through the third quarter. So it, a lot of the quarterbacks are going to have inflated stats from being out there the whole game, you know, or at least a little bit longer. But um, I, I think, I think it's, it's definitely still going to be a quarterback award. And I think two or two or Jalen hurts have, are just putting up video game numbers at this point that kind of lead to them being up there with fields. Like you said, all right. Well, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you making the time tonight, man. No problem. I uh, I appreciate you having me on. So what can we check out from you on Bucky's fifth quarter this week and any other Wisconsin things you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Yeah, um, we've got a couple different things coming up. I, I just uh, finished up my How You Doing, which is a look at Michigan State. Um, and then I also did my college football viewing guide, kind of giving people a, a sense of where when they need to be glued to the TV. And then we also, I'm also part of a uh, podcast, Bucky's Fifth Podcast. Uh, if you guys are looking for uh, more podcasts to listen to, that's always a great one. And we appreciate people uh, giving us a, a look. Um, that's with me and another writer, Tyler Hunt. Um, but you can check me out at, at Saved by the Bells at uh, Twitter or on Twitter. And, uh, but I appreciate you coming on. Bucky's Fifth Quarter uh, loves spreading the brand. All right. Well, go do that. Thanks so much. Good luck this weekend, and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, Chase. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by Matasis of 247 Sports, Virginia Tech site, VT Scoop. Um, Matei, how's it going? going well you know uh coming off a, a big victory against miami entire fan base is excited to see what's in store for the rest of the season so just enjoying reading through everyone's comments tonight so i guess we'll start there i mean i have a i just this virginia tech situation is so fascinating to me because i mean they've just been a staple of just great football for years and years and years and a lot of it is a testament to beamer and bud foster but um, they've struggled a lot in the last year and a half and it's weird kind of struggles that I'm not used to with hokey football. Um, it seems like they may have potentially turned a corner by the QB change and what happened in Miami, but also Miami has some new questions that we're all kind of trying to sort through as well this week. Um, 
what if like were, were you surprised by how Virginia Tech played Saturday against Miami? I was definitely surprised about how they performed at Miami, especially with a new quarterback making his first start in Hard Rock Stadium. I think the ACC Coastal in particular has looked extremely uh, variable this season. Uh, you know, before this game, Virginia Tech loses by 35 points at home to Duke and then beats Miami on the road. So uh, it, it, you don't expect it. Of course, Miami is struggling with their own issues, but uh, it was a, a positive step for Virginia Tech. As you mentioned, the past year and a half hasn't been kind. So what went right for them in that game? Why did they beat Miami? How did they do it? How did they go from losing to Duke in embarrassing fashion one week prior to upsetting Miami the, the week after? I think it, obviously you want to point to the, the new quarterback, Hendon Hooker, and talk about his day, throwing three touchdowns, not committing any turnovers, also having a rushing touchdown as well, and being a dual-threat quarterback, really unlocking the offense. But I think the reason why they beat Miami is because, one, they didn't turn over the ball, and Miami really struggled in that department, turning over the ball four times, or five times, excuse me, uh, four picks and and one fumble. So uh, it definitely was a story of two halves. Virginia Tech was up 28-0 at one point, really till the Hail Mary at the end of the half. Uh, they were able to get off to a 21-0 start in the first quarter, and uh, had four interceptions in the first half. So that, that really dictated how the game was going to turn out. What have you seen um, from Hendon Hooker just at practice and his, just what he looked like coming out of high school as a four-star per 247 Sports? Like, what did, did you expect Hendon Hooker to be um, the guy at Virginia Tech at some point? Did, is this about what you expected from him? I expected it at some point. I didn't expect it now. I thought Ryan Willis, the redshirt senior quarterback, who's now the second string, I thought he was going to ride off this year, uh, break some career passing records at Virginia Tech. Now, again, he came in relief for Josh Jackson, who was injured last year and started eight games and had uh, 2,700 passing yards, 24 touchdowns, eight interceptions. So really good stat line for that quarterback in Ryan Willis. And then this year, whether it's a shoulder injury kind of limiting his ability to throw the ball downfield or his inability to read defenses this year, he's struggled. So they had to make a change. It was Hendon Hooker. Uh, Hendon Hooker is a guy that's more of a dual threat quarterback. Obviously, whenever he's been, uh, you know, put in packages for Virginia Tech, he's always been running. So we've never been able to see his throwing ability until this past week. He's looked good in practice, but that's one thing. Uh, so I was very surprised to see how well he executed. And the fact that he didn't commit any turnovers against a really good Miami defense really shocked me. Yeah, I mean, I guess how much of Virginia Tech's struggles this year um, really came down to just Ryan Willis was under center and not Hooker. Do you think this season looks completely different if Hooker starts out of the gate? I'm not so certain. Um, I think that Ryan Willis definitely, if, if he brought what he brought last year, I think that the offense would have been fine. I think the problem is because he's more of a pro style, the running game has kind of suffered. There's a young offensive line. Uh, they only really have two running backs right now, 
and defenses aren't really respecting Ryan Willis whenever he tries to run the read option. So it's already taking away a huge aspect of your offense. Um, That being said, what he lacked in the run game, he made up for it in the passing game. And this year he just hasn't been able to hit the mark. Uh, Too many interceptions, too many poorly executed plays and, and just not converting enough uh, in drives and, and resulting in points. So I think that because of his inability to pass this year, uh, it's put the defense on the field more. They've gotten more exposed. Whereas Hendon Hooker really, at least what we saw from a one game sample has been able to show himself as a capable runner and a guy that defenses don't know where he's going to go with the ball because he read the field very well uh, and a guy that doesn't make a lot of mistakes. So uh, maybe if he played like this the entire year, we're talking about a completely different Virginia Tech team. Um, but I think there's no way that the staff would have put in Hendon Hooker at the start of the year, knowing what Ryan Willis brought to the table from last year. What has changed um, about this defense in the in recent years under Bud Foster? Why do you think um, things are just different uh, on that side of the ball? I think a lot of it has to deal with recruiting. Uh, I think they've done traditionally Virginia Tech isn't a, a school that's predominantly getting four star guys. They really pride themselves in identifying prospects that are under the radar that they see qualities that they can work with and they really develop players. And I think that these past two years, uh, while they are getting more talent than usual, uh, the development of those players hasn't really shown yet. So when you look at the defense as a whole, there's really, there's two true seniors uh, and then everyone else is pretty much sophomores and freshmen. Uh, I, I think that right now they're really relying on raw talent, not really the development yet. And to be fair to the coaches, I mean, they've only had two off seasons to work with a lot of these guys. Uh, but when you look at some of the typical Bud Foster defenses, they're littered with upperclassmen, NFL caliber guys. And I think that uh, because there might've been uh, some misses in recruiting classes, guys, going off to different schools, NCAA transfer portal and whatnot, that uh, it forced the defense to become younger and less developed. Um, yeah, I it, it, it's just fascinating. Um, and this is it for Bud Foster and uh, after this season, so it should be interesting to see what happens. Have they already put together a transition plan for this? Are they promoting from within, or are they going to hire someone else outside I'll be- of the uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see what they do. I don't believe they're going to promote from within. Uh, and I know that there's, you know, several candidates out there that, that would love to have the Virginia Tech job. Obviously, nobody wants to follow in the footsteps of a legend and a guy that's been there for 33 years. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, he's a coordinator that's making over a million dollars. You can't say that about everyone. So I'm sure they'll, they'll find someone capable. I think they'll try to find someone with the the same scheme, so to speak. Um, but we'll see what happens. I'm I'm very curious to see which direction they go. If you had to kind of look at uh, Justin Fuentes, just his time in Blacksburg, and you had to parse through what he has gotten 
unequivocally right and what he's gotten unequivocally wrong, what would it be? I think it's tough because you look at his first two years, he, he won a total of 19 games, made it to the ACC championship game, uh, and really took 2016 national champion Clemson within a touchdown in that ACC title game. So he showed that he's able to lead a program where it needs to be. I think the problem has been, and much of the criticism that when he did things right, a lot of what he inherited from Frank Beamer was used to accomplish that. In year three, the slate was wiped clean. Uh, You know, he had new guys that he had to make decisions where they were going to play. And all of a sudden, the results just weren't going Virginia Tech's way. So I think that while he is a credible coach, you can point to his successes. And if he has everything, he can get the job done. I think his failures or shortcomings have been being able to properly manage a roster and get enough talent stockpiled to be able to accomplish that goal. What has been the most underrated issue surrounding this Virginia Tech program this year that is that hasn't really been talked about enough in your opinion what have you seen or what is it what is one thing you've kept your eye on that you're like huh this is this is an interesting little tidbit that no one's really noticed or no one's really talking about on a on a larger scale yeah that's a that's a really good question I would say uh really leadership and I don't know if that stems from the coaching staff placing an identity onto the players or the players just taking up leadership. Again, I know I mentioned that the team is super young, but it seems like the teams in the past just had these leaders that they rallied around. You see guys on the defense, yeah, maybe they're undersized, but they're flying around. Uh, To be fair, I think we saw signs of that uh, against Miami, but in general, these past two years have just felt like when things are going bad, everyone just wants to give up. And not a lot of things are going right, and it doesn't seem like too many guys care about it. Uh, And and when you look at uh, some of Justin Fuente's first two years, really, he had guys like Sam Rogers, uh, a walk-on fullback at one point, that that really was the leader of the locker room, and and guys rallied around him. And it it sounds simple, you know, walk-on guy that, that comes in is all fired up to get his opportunity, but for lack of a better reason there just hasn't been a guy that you can point to and say this guy is who the team is rallying around that's that is interesting and i wonder um if that's something that improves with um the exit of bud foster and and another new name uh running that defense and fuente just getting more and more acclimated and comfortable um in blacksburg um if you had to say like what the expectations should have been for Virginia Tech football in 2019 uh, before the season, what would you have said was the realistic expectation for fans like that, what they should be happy with and what they should strive for? I I mean, before the season, you know, we ran through the schedule. I, I thought it was all about, uh, you know, getting to an eight and four mark and, you know, potentially competing for the top spot in the ACC Coastal with either Virginia or Miami. Obviously, Miami doesn't look too strong right now. Uh, But it's tough because when fans look at the schedule, it's one of the worst schedules, if not the worst schedule 
in all of college football, uh, especially the power five opponents that they have to play this year. Um, but I firmly believe that after last year, having the first losing season in over two decades and, and finishing six and seven, losing at the bowl game, barely making the bowl game, having to schedule a new opponent just to make one. Uh, I, I think there was a lot of problems that stem from that team. And I think that a lot of people were naive to believe that all of that went away. And I think through the first month in September, we've seen a lot of those problems reoccur, especially in that 35 point loss against Duke. Uh, but my real my realistic expectation for this team was always eight and four. And, and now that expectation has shifted to just make a bowl game, just go seven and five. So, you know, we'll see. If you had to say for all the, the Virginia Tech fans listening right now, if you had to just give the biggest reason for optimism in the Justin Fuente program going forward, what would it be? I would say it would be Hendon Hooker and how the team responded against Miami. And of course, it's recency bias. It's uh, the last result. It was the last positive result. But it was a guy for the first time that felt like Virginia Tech was doing things right that even when they were winning this season against Old Dominion and Furman, it looked sloppy. Uh, People didn't look motivated. And for the first time ever, it looked like everyone was on the same page, that everyone was rallied around someone. I was just talking about that, that they needed to find a leader. And Hendon Hooker, sure, he's a redshirt sophomore, but it seemed like through his play and his confidence that he kind of ignited the rest of the team, that for the first time the bench was alive in a hostile environment. So if they can keep that up and, and bring that to Lane Stadium, and in two weeks they'll be playing North Carolina, which has now become a huge game in the ACC Coastal, if they can bring that same sort of swagger to Lane Stadium and defend their turf, I mean, maybe those expectations of, of nine and three are, are back on the board, uh, eight and four back on the board. Looking at the schedule from here on out, what would be your best guess on how this works? And also, who is the biggest, uh, maybe not even who, but what is uh, the game that you're most interested in seeing uh, for Virginia Tech? Uh, so for the rest of the season, I, I think it's going to be interesting. Right now, I still have them pegged at a, a 7-5 and five team. It's going to be very tough. But, uh, you know, next week playing URI, not very exciting of an opponent they're one in four right now fcs school uh but the most interesting game to me has to be the last game of the season the commonwealth cup against a ranked virginia for so long uh, it's been virginia tech has been the dominant in-state school i mean you know they have a decade and a half win streak over virginia right now in the commonwealth cup and not only that for the first time the tides have shifted now it's Virginia is known as the in-state school, at least this year, uh, in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. They're at the top of the ACC Coastal. They look like the best bet for the team that's going to play Clemson eventually in the ACC championship game. But not only that, it's going to be Bud Foster's last game, and he has to travel to Charlottesville. Obviously, there might be a bowl game in the future, but that's really it. That's the last chance he has to kind of stamp his legacy. And I'm sure he doesn't want to go out with a loss. So 
whatever happens to Virginia Tech this year, I think that there's evidence, at least from last week, that Virginia Tech can be competitive in that game. And then again, that defense is going to come out fired up and they're going to want to play for Bud Foster. Virginia, on the other hand, it looks like their year. They're going to want to finally end the streak. They're a ranked opponent. And uh, yeah, they look good too. So I think that one's going to be for for the first time. I, I know a lot of these games recently have been very close, but this one just seems to have the most headlines surrounding it. All right. Well, what uh, can we check out from you this week on uh, Virginia Tech's 247 uh, sports site? Yeah, so we're going to be doing a, a Rhode Island preview. Um, I know fascinating stuff, but you know mm. we're 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 kind of delving into what Hendon Hooker brings, kind of what the coaches have been saying about him, what it means for the rest of the season. I think there's been a positive twist recently with that game against Miami. I keep bringing it up, but uh, just a lot of good things, a lot of key players coming back, a lot of interesting scoops. Uh, that we're excited to share throughout the course of this week. So uh, any Virginia Tech fan, any ACC fan, I implore you to come check it out on VT Scoop. All right. Well, go do that. Thanks so much for taking the time today. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, really appreciate it as well. And thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you so much. And I will have another episode tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.